Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Turn in your copy of God's Scripture to 2 Kings chapter 18. We'll be looking at some passages in 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20. A fairly unfamiliar Bible story I bring to our attention today, unfinished business. Maybe you remember Irma Bombeck. I bet many of you do. At the family funeral service for Irma Bombeck, her husband Bill recalled with this story the beginning and the end of their relationship. In 1947, three or four couples were outside the Lakeside Ballroom in Dayton, Ohio. They were too early to be admitted to the big band dance, and so they all wandered over to the adjoining amusement park. Not far from the ballroom was a roller coaster, and all the boys began cajoling their dates to ride the roller coaster. The girls giggled and said, no, it'll, it'll mess up my hair, it'll mess up my dress, it's too scary, I'm not going to ride and I looked at my date, writes Bill Bombeck, and asked her if she wanted to go. Irma, Bill's date, didn't hesitate. She said, sure, I'll ride the roller coaster. I was surprised, and I looked at her again. She was of slight build, narrow shoulders, and tiny hands and feet, and right between her two front teeth, there was a gap. She had a, a beautiful smile, and I thought to myself, this is some kind of girl. The lakeside roller coaster was a rickety old leftover from the Depression. The frame of the roller coaster was basically built out of unpainted two-by-fours, and no OSHA inspection would ever approve this for a human ride. The cars were linked together by what looked like modified train couplers, and they were mostly painted redwood with metal wheels and a cog-like device that clicked really loudly. The seats had worn black leather. There were no seat belts, but that was a familiar metal bar that comes down right there at your waist. They were well-worn, and the attendant was an old man in oily bib overalls. He didn't say much. She sat in the seat first. I followed by her side. The bar clicked down into place just above our waistlines. The car left the level starting track and began that slow ascent in about 20 or 30 seconds when the track had become steeper, almost straight up, you heard that cock engage, that clicking sound, that clickety-clack rhythmic sound. You think you're going to die before it ever gets to the top. Well, we got to that point where the passengers are forced to stare, not at the car in front of them or at the ground below, but straight up in the sky, and then it went straight down, and she was screaming, grabbing my arm. I said, grab the bar, but she kept grabbing my arm. What if whatever slows it down isn't working today, and what if we die, I thought to myself. The ride continued. Bone-jarring twists, turns 
dizzy heights, abrupt plunges, and sometimes we go down into a dark tunnel, tunnel so dark that the sparks from the track and the metal wheels made it look like the track was on fire. And she kept hanging onto my arm, and I kept hanging onto the metal bar. I thought I would bend it. This was some ride. We were exhilarated, scared, breathless, excited. We had been in and out a lot of dark, dark tunnels. Each time they, they ended with a blinding light when you burst out of the tunnel and back into the light for another straight-up climb. But then we started into a, a tunnel, and the plunge was deeper than before. It kept dropping, and somehow we both sensed that this tunnel was altogether different than the others. And finally, instead of bright lights, we arrived back at the platform. We looked at each other. We didn't speak. We sensed the ride had changed. The man in the, the, man in the bib overalls took that tapered two-by-four and pulled it straight up to stop our car. I told him, man, the ride is great. It was exciting, but it was too short. Let us go again. He raised the bar. I looked at the attendant, and he said, April the 22nd, 1996, your ride is over. I looked over at Irma's seat, and she was gone. There are a thousand versions, but the storyline always goes something like this. The doctor comes into the small patient examination room and closes the door. We can't be exactly sure what it is yet. There's something on the x-ray, and we're going to need a biopsy and a scan. And, well, we're, we're, we're going to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. But you need to go home and get your affairs in order. Those are shocking, dreaded words. Look over at 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 1. The last word spoken to King Hezekiah. Set your house in order. Set your house in order. Those are shocking words. Dreaded by both the physician and the patient. Dreaded by the patient's family and friends. Set your house in order. It's a scene we come to in 2 Kings chapter 20, but it's not a, a doctor and a patient. It's a prophet and a king. And Hezekiah is a good king. He started on the throne at age 25, and he reigned for, are you ready, 29 years. Look back now at chapter 18 and verse 3. And Hezekiah did write in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Hezekiah did write in the sight of the Lord according to all his father David had done. He had removed the idolatry. He had removed the high places where they worshipped and the Asherah even the bronze serpent that Moses had made, they had made it into an idol, and he broke it into pieces. Look at 
He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after Hezekiah, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Set your house in order, Hezekiah. Now we know that Hezekiah had been a very good king. Shalom the king gets two verses. The writer of 2 Kings gives him two verses to describe his reign. Hezekiah gets 70 verses. And they're verses of praise and words about how good and obedient and faithful the king has been. He was not like his dad. Ahaz was a bad king. Hezekiah, the son, was good. When it comes to the royal report card, A-plus for Hezekiah. In fact, he might even be caught up in the moment, but did you notice what he said? There is no king like Hezekiah before. Now, who would that include? David and Solomon. There's no king as good as Hezekiah before. There's no king better than Hezekiah that follows. We learn in 2 Chronicles, our parallel passage to today, these are the things he did. Hezekiah opened the doors of the temple again and started worship to Yahweh again. He took the Levites and let them set themselves apart to begin their priestly ministry again. He restored the traditional worship of Yahweh that had been lost under his father. He reinstituted the Passover feast of unleavened bread. In fact, he even invited the northern tribes to come down and worship in the temple. Finally, he returned the nation to the Lord so that God once again was hearing the prayers of his people. He was a righteous man, a man of faith and obedience. And he finds himself this morning in chapter 18 in a fix. Sennacherib, well, he, he sent his delegation, and Hezekiah sent his delegation, and look at 1918. Thus says the great king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? Sennacherib, the Assyrian, has surrounded the city, and Hezekiah refuses to surrender. And Sennacherib cannot figure out why Hezekiah has this confidence? Because he doesn't have the army to back it up. You think Egypt's going to help you? <laughs> I've already taken care of Egypt. She is a crushed reed. You think your God's going to help you? You've already torn down the high places. Now, we know those were places of idolatrous worship, but... Well, Sennacherib didn't know the difference between worshiping Yahweh and worshiping idols, and he thought worship was over for Judah. Yahweh is not going to help you. In fact, he says in verse 23 of chapter 18, turn back, I could give you 2,000 horses with which to fight me, and you wouldn't have the riders to put on them. <laughs> I thought I'd give you 2,000 horses just to make it a, a sporting affair. Now, Hezekiah is nervous, and his delegation is nervous. And they say to the Assyrians, can we change this conversation into Aramaic? 
You see, they're shouting at the people on the wall, and the people on the wall at Jerusalem are hearing these words, and they understand the fix that God's people are in. And so they say, can we change this into a language that is official language of treaties and war so that our population won't understand what's being said? And Sennacherib says, no, no. I want your people to hear. In fact, he says in verse 27 of chapter 18, if they don't come out and surrender, they'll be eating their own dung and drinking their own urine. It is the language, the awful language of war. Then he begins to shout to the people. Listen to the great king of Assyria. Don't let Hezekiah trick you. He won't be able to deliver you. Your Lord will not be able to deliver you. If you won't on your menu to see some figs and some water out of the well, your own figs, your own well, then you better surrender. Have any of the other gods of any of the other lands been able to help them? Where are the gods of Hamath? Where are the gods of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepha Vim? And where are the gods of Hena and Eva? Samaria has crushed them all, and we will crush you too. Hezekiah's upset. He rents, he, he tears his royal robes. Well, the first thing I want you to see this morning, we are not self-sufficient. We are not self-sufficient. Judah's army... No match for the Assyrian army. The warfare, the instruments of warfare, Jerusalem was not near where Samaria was. It was a one-sided affair to be sure. And Hezekiah realizes it and he's upset and he realizes he is not self-sufficient. Here we have a poignant, powerful example of a man wearing royal robes who realizes he can't take care of the problem, and he tears his clothes in humility and cries out to God. He didn't need politicians. He didn't need a prince that day. He didn't need secular advisors. He didn't need war counselors. He didn't need military strategists. He didn't need fortune tellers. He needed a word from the prophet, a word from Yahweh. Look at 19.6. That word comes. Do not be afraid of Assyria. They have, God says, they have blasphemed me. The second thing I want you to see this morning, not only are we not self-sufficient, but secondly, we need to turn to God. Secondly, this morning, we need to turn, like Hezekiah, to God. The Syrian thread is, this time is, the second time is given in the form of a letter. And the letter says around verse 14 of chapter 19, how can your God help when no other God has been able to help? How can your God do anything? When the gods of the other nations have done nothing. And then in verse 22, God says, Assyria, Sennacherib have not only offended my people, but they have offended me. 
They have blasphemed against me. Whom have you reproached, Sennacherib? It is none other than the Holy One of Israel. Verse 32 of chapter 19. God says, don't worry. He's not going to come in this city. He's not going to shoot a single arrow against you. You know how they would build up the mounds with dirt to take over the wall? He won't build up the mounds of dirt to take over the wall around Jerusalem. And then almost a matter-of-factly, it's so anticlimactic, it's not the way we would make the movie. But look at verse 35, 1935. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of Assyrians. When the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. All the posturing and all the verbiage and all the threats against God and God's people and Hezekiah renting his robes and crying out. One verse. And that night, an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. And so Sennacherib woke up. God wanted him to stay alive to see what happened. Sennacherib woke up, just went home. He didn't shoot an arrow. He didn't build a ramp to overcome the wall. And so when we come now back to chapter 20, knowing all the obedience and how God had delivered Hezekiah, we are quite surprised when the announcement comes to Hezekiah, set your house in order, O king. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, our good king, our great king, who had lived a life like a roller coaster up and down and in the dark tunnels of Sennacherib and out of those tunnels to the lifeful ends. All of a sudden, he's deathly ill. And all of a sudden, in, in chapter 20 and verse 1, the word comes from the prophet, set your house in order, you're going to die and not to live. The doctor brings the news He's not sure, he says, but set your house in order. If he's wrong, all the better. If he's right, you're prepared. No, no, this time it wasn't a physician, but rather it was a prophet, and the prophet who had always spoken the truth of God to deliver Hezekiah now says, Hezekiah, set your house in order. First thing is we're not self-sufficient. The second thing is we must turn to God. The third thing is we must set our house in order with our family. We must set our house in order with our family. A dozen sermons demand to be preached from this little-known Bible story about Hezekiah, Sennacherib, and Isaiah, and they call out with their own voices for our attention, but what I want you to see this morning is set your house in order. These words have a myriad of meaning for us. Get the will done, 
the living will, the power of attorney, the insurance policies, make sure they're all tucked away in order. But that's the easy stuff, isn't it? The real thing is getting our relationships right, setting our house in order. Pastor, friend of mine, Bobby Dagnall, at First Baptist Lubbock, tells this story himself, and with his permission, I tell it to you. Bobby and his father had a very antagonistic relationship. I've been with them when they were together, and you could just cut the tension with a knife. Oh, there was that foundational love for each other, to be sure, that, that, that deepest foundation. But really, they were so much like each other, it wasn't long when they were together till they began bearing a war of words. It always started out with a handshake and a hug, and everything was okay. But about a half an hour later, Bobby's father had had enough of Bobby, and Bobby had had enough of Pops. You get the picture. It was the last afternoon of Mr. Dagnall's life. Bobby and his father, called Pops, were on the balcony of a condominium they'd rented in Florida for a family vacation. Pops and Bobby were looking at the, the white sands on the Emerald Coast together. And just the two of them were enjoying the relaxing wave in the white sand and they finally found themselves in the midst of a conversation they should have had years before, a time for calling a truce, a conversation that Bobby treasures to this day. Pops was telling Bobby how proud he was. Proud of his son's education. Proud of his son pastoring a church. Proud of the fathering that Bobby did to his children. Pops' health was frail. He had had a heart attack in the last few years and three strokes. And in fact, he had experienced the classic symptoms of a heart attack during the vacation, but refused to go to the hospital. Something inside my friend Bobby was compelling him. Tell your father how much he means to you. Reciprocate the blessing that Pops has given to you, offered in peace. He said he was compelled to tell Pops how much he appreciated the investment in his education and the principles by which he had raised him and the qualities he had instilled into his life and the way that he loved his grandchildren. But Bobby said, and I quote, for whatever reason, I did not say those things. I decided I would wait for another time. I would wait for a better time. Five hours later, my father was pronounced dead of a massive heart attack in the emergency room. He says, and I quote, I share this story with you. If you have something you need to say, then say it. If there's a loose end or a damaged relationship or friendship, tie it up today. Set your house in order with your family. Here's the final thing I want you to see. 
set your house in order with the Father. Set your house in order with the Father. Unfinished business with the family, but even more important, unfinished business with the Father. Set your house in order, Hezekiah. Hezekiah prayed. He prayed to God. I want you to notice the things that he says. Chapter 20 and verse 3, he says things like this. I have walked with you, God. I have been faithful and true to you, O God. Verse 3 there. I have had a, a loyal heart to you, O God. I've served you with my whole heart. There's been no duplicity in my faith. God, I've always tried to do what's right. And God hears the prayer of Hezekiah. And in verse 6 of chapter 20, the prophet Isaiah brings the message. Look at it, 26. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of King Assyria. And Hezekiah took his medicine and got better. How can I know, says Hezekiah? How can I know that I really will get better and not die? How can I know I have the extra 15 years? Well, says the prophet Isaiah, do you want the sundial to go forward in time, 10 degrees, or backward in time, 10 degrees? They, his father had built a descending set of stairs, and the sun would shine on the stairs and tell the time. And Hezekiah said, well, the, the sun always goes forward. That's easy. I want the sun to go backwards. Indeed, the sun began to go backwards 10 degrees, and Hezekiah then knew that God would give him the extra 15 years. Set your house in order with your family. Set your house in order with your father. There's some here this morning or some watching by way of television. It's always the next Sunday, the next day, the new year. You know, Satan will never tell you to say no. He always gets you to say, wait. As long as you push it forward to the next month, the next year, your faithfulness, your relationship with God the Father through the crucified and resurrected Son. He, Satan says, yes, you can get that right, but get it right later. Wait. British Airways 747 jumbo jet bound from London from San Francisco was loaded with 391 passengers. Someone pulled a prank, not too funny, but a passenger hit the button and that day that played the tape that said, we're about to crash in the ocean and this is what you need to do. As everybody on the plane was hearing, as they're flying over the, the ocean, as they began to hearing this tape about how to prepare for the water crash, the flight crew immediately recognized the mistake and the prank and they shut it off, but not before several Passengers had to be treated for anxiety attacks by the physicians they're on board. Lloyd Popel, a passenger headed back home to England, said, To be told you're about to die is not a pleasant experience. 
To be told you're about to die is not a pleasant experience. Hezekiah, set your house in order. You are about to die. That message comes to us all sometime. And sometimes we pray and we cry out to God. And and sometimes, like with Hezekiah, God hears our prayers and our days are extended. And other times, for whatever reason, not because we're good or bad, because of the providence of God, the roller coaster really does stop. Little man, the overall bibs really does pull up the taper two by four and announce the journey is done. We are not self-sufficient. We must turn to God. We have to set our house in order with our family, and we have to set our house in order with our Father. Who needs to hear you say, I love you? And don't tell me men in your family don't talk that way. If they don't, they need to learn. I love you. Who needs to hear you say, I forgive you. Can you forgive me? But most importantly, what does God need to hear you say? Let us pray. Oh God, there are men and women watching by way of television and others in this great sanctuary that today would be his day or her day to say, I won't wait. I'm going to get right today. Jesus is Lord. I come to commit myself to him. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. If you're here this morning and that's what you need to do, that'll make you just like me and everybody else in this room. We had that day when we said, we're a sinner and we need a Savior. Maybe there are others here this morning, oh God, who need to come and be a a part of this grouping of your family called First Baptist Church to worship here and serve here, to find community here. And family here. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.